Morning, family. Everybody doing well? Okay, I believe you. It's so great to be together, and I especially want to just say it's so wonderful to have the the kids with us in the service during these times and just their worship and and being part of this. And um, we're talking about fruitfulness at this time, and we're going to spend some time in John 15 today, which is almost a bit of the corner scripture of our series. So if you want to, please get your devices and your Bibles, and let's go to John chapter 15. But I want to ask the, the children here today a question. I don't know if they know the answer. What happens when you stomp on grapes. What do grapes do when you stomp on them? Any of the children know? What do grapes do when you stomp on them? They whine. <laughs> D- dad jokes, come on. Who needs dad jokes in their lives? We all do. Luke and I consistently share dad jokes, and uh, so there's more to come. Uh, Today I want to talk about just an aspect of John 15 and one of the resources that I've been using through this series that's really been helpful is a commentary by by, by a guy by the name of Gary M. Birch and he just mentions in his commentary a structure to the book of John that's the chapter John, John 15, which perhaps may be a little different. And I want to use that structure today to talk through this passage with us. And he talks about how in John 15, there are four types of relationships that Jesus touches on that are part of our fruit-bearing lives. And what I want to do today is I really want to spend time around the first one and because that affects the other three and then just touch on the other three. These four relationships that he highlights for us along with the verses that talks about them, is that if we want to have a fruitful life, we need fruitful relationships. And the first one is with Christ, then with fellow believers, a fruitful relationship with the world, and then a fruitful relationship with the Spirit. I'm sure you'll agree with me that if it comes to the reality of our lives and how we live and who we are as people, relationships are so determinative in the kind of person that I am and how I live my life. Would you agree with me in that statement? So much of your life is determined by your relationships. I I often ask people this question to try and illustrate the point about the value and and the, the, the meaning of relationships in our lives. And it's this question, can you define yourself or describe yourself to somebody else without making use of any relational reference. Try and describe yourself to somebody else without any relational reference. I don't think you can do it. Because even if I say to you, hello, my name is Louis, that name is a relational reference, is it not? I didn't choose that name. I was given that name. I don't know if you, I don't think any of you know this, but my name was this close to actually being Eben. (laughs) My dad was watching the Springboks play in 1968. I don't know who they were playing, I can't remember. But there was a Springbok player by the name of Eben Willifiers. I don't know if anybody in this room will remember this person. And this particular day he was watching, it was very close to my actually being born. And he said to my mom, if he scores one more try, we're going to call this son Eben. (laughs) And for better or worse, he did not score another try. So therefore, I am now Louis. But anything we have to 
use to describe ourselves has some relational connection to it. Even if I tell you what I do as an occupation, it's filled with relational references. Relationships are so determinative in shaping who we are as people and how we live our lives. And Jesus leans right into this in John 15. In John 15 verse 1, we read these very familiar words that we have referred to often over the last couple of months. I am the vine, or as he says it in this translation, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Jesus is saying that if we want to live a fruitful life, a life that represents him, that pleases him, that glorifies him, that reflects who he is. If we want to live a fruitful life, it's all about our relationship with him, that we be in right relationship with him because that will produce the fruit. Now, again, so often, as I've alluded to during this series, some of the power of what he's saying may be lost upon us because we don't understand the symbolic language he's using. But in this sentence, he's actually saying a very radical thing to this Jewish audience. You see, for the average Jew at that time, they were very familiar with this language of the vine. Because throughout the Old Testament, it is often this, the, 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 the image that is used to describe the nation of Israel is that they are the vine. We see this in Isaiah 5. We see this, for instance, in Psalm 80. We see it in Jeremiah 2 verse 21, where it says, I had planted you like a choice vine, of sound and reliable stock and many other verses in the Old Testament, God would refer to Israel, the Jewish people, as his vine that he planted for the display of his glory to bear the fruit among the nations that will represent him and reflect him. So the average Jewish person grew up with this understanding that if I am going to live a life that pleases God, that will bear the fruit of the kingdom, I have to be connected into the vine of Israel. I had to be vitally connected to the Jewish system of law, celebrations, uh, ceremony, symbolism, and live my life in that way. The average Jew knew that they had to keep the Sabbath, they had to keep the ceremonial laws, the cleansing laws, and as they did that, they were grafted into the vine of the Jew. And that would make them bear the fruit that would honor God. Now listen to what Jesus says. He says, I am the vine, the true vine. Unless you are grafted into me, you can do nothing. Do you pick up what Jesus is doing? He's replacing the vine of Israel with himself. He's saying to these Jews, the statement that got him into real trouble that got him into a space where they, act, they crucified him because of this kind of statement. He's basically saying to the Jewish person that's listening to him, no longer do you need to be grafted into the vine of Israel, but you need to be grafted into the vine of me, the Messiah. 
If you are going to bear the fruit that will please the Father, it is not your Jewishness that will determine that. It is your connection to me that will determine that. And the Jewish people of the day struggled with that statement. The leaders all the more. Imagine you're a Jewish leader. Your whole job, your whole reason for your position in that community is to help people to know how they should live grafted into the vine of Israel so that they can produce the fruit. And then comes this guy and he says, that's no longer the way. I'm telling you a new way. Be grafted into me. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. You see, Isaiah 5 says, the father is the gardener, but Israel is the vine. Jesus now says, I am the vine. So perhaps we, we, we don't have the historical or the religious context to understand the radical change that Jesus is asking of them. The radical realignment that he's saying to them. Imagine the shift it must have taken for them to actually begin to understand. It actually took the New Testament church that was birthed out of the Jewish synagogue and out of Jewish religious system years and decades to begin to fully understand what Jesus was saying. And we see that through the book of Acts, that, that journey taking place with starting to include the Gentiles, for instance. Because to them, everything was about Jewishness. And Jesus is bringing that shift I mean, right now we live in a world where many people are having to figure out and realign themselves in a new way of living with this fourth industrial revolution. And, and particularly now the, the rise and the becoming of, of so more effective in our lives, affective in our lives of artificial intelligence. There are jobs that are being significantly impacted. Education is being impacted by artificial intelligence. So much of life is starting to be like, what is it going to look like in five years? And we all have to start figuring out. Now, will my job still exist? Perhaps over five years from now, you'll have a digital pastor. A pastor with real intelligence. <laughs> Some will say, I have artificial intelligence. So, you, I don't know. But the shifts we're feeling is, can I say, almost nothing compared to that shift for these Jewish people. Jesus is saying, if you want to bear the fruit that will please God, you have to make a fundamental change in your life and in your spirituality, your religion needs to change. Why did he ask for this change? Why did he call for this change? What was he offering that was better than what they had? Why did he come and say, this system is, is redundant? There's a new system that is required. Now, I think this is very important for us to continue to wrestle with in our lives. What Jesus was saying is the old way of doing it had value, but it couldn't do what it was ultimately supposed to do. You see, what the law was good at, the Jewish system, the religious system with its ceremonies, its laws, its requirements, is what it was good at, it is clearly defined for a person what you should do in order to please God. To be a person whose life bore fruit that was in keeping with who God was. That how to be 
a believer, a Jew. It was good at describing that for you. It had a great structure that, was, that started with big picture and then broke it down and detailed it and refined it to many different little laws and things so that the average Jewish person knew, if I wanted to please God, I had to do the, the Sabbath and, and the festivals of the Sabbath. Every week I had to do that. Check. I'm a good Jew. I did my Sabbath. I had my meal. I did all the things. You knew you had to attend certain festivals, did that. You knew the cleansing ceremonies, check, I did that. It created a very stable and very trustworthy, very understandable system of what to do so that you can be godly. But what did it fail at? What could it never do? Why did Jesus say, I need to bring you a new way, a better way? You see, because what the law and the system could only do was teach you what to do and how to behave, but it could not actually change you. It could not make you different. You could know how to behave so that you looked like you were in good standing with God, but it couldn't transform you on the inside. Even in the Old Testament, in places like Jeremiah, the prophet writes, he says, my law will be written on your hearts. You see, the Old Testament law was written on stone tablets. It was an external reality. It was something I interacted with on a regular occasion as a Jewish person that I measured myself against and said, how am I doing according to this stone tablet? Am I living up to it? It required of me to do the work so that I could measure up against this law. But it could not fundamentally make me a different person. It could not really change me. Change my behavior. Change my activity. But it didn't change me. And so Jesus comes and says, I want to change you. I want to give you a new heart. I want to do something inside of you. And that's where Jesus says, he says this, um, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I also remain in you. Do you hear the language Jesus is using? It is a very internal language opposed to the law which is an external language. Jesus is beginning to internalize things. He says, I don't want to do something with your life. I want to do something in your life. I don't want you to experience me just because I'm doing things for you and with you. I want you to be in me. And that was the radical fundamental difference. Jesus is saying, I need you to not remain in a system of the law. I need you to remain in me and I want to remain in you. A very intimate language. A very involved language. A very close language. A language that says, instead of you ticking the boxes, I want to recreate something in you. Now ultimately, what I will do inside of you will look perhaps a bit like what you used to do in the law. It will transform your actions. It will change the way you do things, what you do, how you live. But it will be for different reasons. And it will be from a different place. That's why Jesus said, I've not come to 
do away with the law, but to fulfill the law. I'm actually coming to do something in you that'll make it possible for you what the law's always asked of you to do, but you cannot do. I'm going to do in you and so that you can do what the Lord asks of you to do. But it's only possible because of an internal reshaping and working. We read on in verse five. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. There's no other thing that you can be connected into that can do this, that can transform you, that can change you, that can make you a new person. It's only me that can do that, Jesus says. You have to remain in me and let me remain in you. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciple. A disciple is somebody that has come to that place of saying, Jesus, I can do nothing without you. I need to be grafted into you. You need to be my alpha, my omega, my beginning, my end, my source of life, my everything is you, Jesus. That's what a follower of Jesus is, a disciple of Jesus is. Now, if you read this at first glance, we may misunderstand a little bit of what, what Jesus is saying. When he says this statement, he says, um, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. That language, it's important that we understand what he's saying because it may make us feel like fruit is the test. Fruit is the thing that I have to get right so that I can prove that I'm in Jesus. If we, if, we, if we approach it that way, then we're just slipping right back into the old covenant again. What Jesus is saying is saying, your fruit that you will bear will be the display, it will show that you are grafted into me. He's not saying you must produce fruit so that you can show that you are grafted into me. He's saying, if you are grafted into me, you will bear the fruit. Do you understand the difference? Because if you make fruit the focus, then, what, then you do whatever you need to do to get the fruit. Jesus is saying fruit is the result, it's the product, but what is the focus? What is the thing he's saying I must do? He's not telling me I must bear fruit, he's telling me to do something else, and if I do that something else, it will produce the fruit. What is that something else? Abide, remain, be vitally connected, be intimate, be connected with him. If I'm connected with him, the fruit will be born by me. It's the natural result. It's the natural product. It's what will happen. It's like the T's and C's that apply. The guarantee, eternal guarantee on the seed of Jesus in your life is if Jesus is in your life and if you abide with him, you will bear fruit. It will happen. It's just the way it is. Because I'm grafted into him. You see, if I'm grafted into the law, I will sometimes bear the fruit. I may get it right to some degree, but if I'm grafted into Jesus, over time, this fruit will begin to flourish through my life because I am in a living relationship with Jesus. I'm no longer ticking boxes. 
I'm no longer saying, okay, what does it mean to be a Christian? Okay, a Christian must do this, a Christian must do this, a Christian must do this, a Christian mustn't do this, a Christian mustn't do this. And if I copy all those things and if you get that right, I must be a Christian. No. Lord Jesus, I love you. You are my everything. I want to be loved by you. And he begins to reform, reshape, recreate, transform me into his image. And that fruit begins to display through my life. That fruit begins to blossom and flourish, as I say. John 15, verse 9 to 11. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. You keep my commandments, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Jesus defines for us our relationship with him with two words that he says, these words will be present in your life. Love and joy. You see, because he says the law you did Sometimes there may have been a little bit of love involved in why people kept the law. But actually the power of the law was in guilt, shame. It was in fear. Jesus says that will never produce in your life. The consistent flourishing of the fruit of God. The only thing that can produce in your life and my life that we burst forth in the fruit of who God is and reflect him is we respond to him because we love him. We do it from a a heart of love. And when we do that, it begins to produce a joy in us. I think that's very important to understand. My my non-believing friends, as I interact with them sometimes, it's amazing to me how they tend to want to define my life experience as a Christian by the things I'm not doing. They, they, They sometimes will sort of say something to the effect of, your life must be so boring. Because you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. And, and it's like they, they see all the things I miss out on in life. And therefore my life must be <laughs> empty. Like, like sometimes they'll talk and they're, you know, it's almost like they're trying to say to me, you can't get drunk on a Friday night, your life must be so terrible. And then I listen to them, espouse the virtues of getting drunk on a Friday night. And then I, you know, I go, man... I've been around drunk people. I mean, I lived with an alcoholic father. I have seen drunk people. And by my, and you know, I've, I've been around places and I've, I've, been in, I've been to Loftus a couple of times, you know? And I don't know about you, but to me, drunk people, they don't look like they're having the greatest time eventually. Hey? I mean, I listen to my friends that, that go on a Friday night and they... They get an Uber so that they can go to some place and pay very expensive for their shots or whatever they're doing. And they have a great time until they throw up. (laughs) And then the next morning, what do they typically say while they're sitting there with a raw piece of meat on their forehead? You know, life's great. Isn't this a picture of how wonderful life is when you see a person with like a packet of frozen beans on their forehead or a raw steak or something and they're holding it and, and, and they're drinking some, some concoction to try and get over how bad they feel and then they'll say these words to you, yes, last night was great, I can't remember a thing. <laughs> I'm like, excuse me. 
If that's great living, I... Now I do understand. They only see what I can't do. But they don't see, perhaps, easily and early on, the joy of not having to do certain things. They don't understand the holes that have been filled in my heart. They don't understand the things in me that is so full and so thankful for that I don't have to try and do those things. I'm not doing a lot of those things because it's a law. I don't have to, I don't want to do those things because there's a freedom, there's a, there's a fullness, there's a beauty in me. Amen? My life's not but defined by what I can't do. It's defined by what I have already received in my Jesus. That I, I've gotten to know that he loves me and there's certain things I just don't need to do to feel loved. I mean, I, I can remember when I was in my military service, uh, I was the only Christian in my unit at the time. About 450 people and I was the only Christian evidently. I think there were a few other hidden ones, but I was the only one that everybody knew. They called me priester. Priest, if you don't know what that means. Not because I preached. Not because I went around telling everybody I was a Christian. It's just the, by the things I did and did not do, they started making conclusions about my life. One of the things I didn't do is I didn't sleep with my girlfriend. I know there's children in the room, so parents, that's up to you to describe what that means. Sorry for getting you into it. But certain things I just didn't do. I didn't make use of every opportunity like they did whenever we went out or wherever we were to pick up girls and hang out, you know. I didn't do that. I didn't say anything about it. I didn't wag my finger at them and I didn't do anything. I just didn't do it. But they didn't like that. They would get up in my face about it. They would like, you know, what's wrong with you? Kind of attitude. And like, I said, guys, I don't, I don't want to do that because there's something in my life that is far more valuable and that I treasure. And I know if I begin to do that, I'm stepping away from this love in my life. I'm starting to separate myself from this love, this love that is my life source and I do not want to do it. It's not that I don't get tempted, it's just the cost is too big. I don't want to do it. But they could never understand that. You see, and it, it, it's therefore because of this living relationship we have with Jesus that there's a joy that begins to fill our lives. That, that some people find hard to understand. But you, you can't do this. You can't go there. You have to do these things. and You, know, you have to go to church on a Sunday and listen to some guy talk. And oh, it's boring. And, you know, and they look at us and they go, you know, your life must like suck lemons, man. <laughs> hey? They, they think a Christian's life's like, you know, we just, you know, life's miserable. We're just sort of getting by. We're just hanging on till Jesus comes and then we'll have a party. But now it's like, mm, you know. Just. By the way, another one for the children. What fruit is green and square? Do you know the fruit that is green and square? Come on, anybody knows the fruit that is green and square? Lemons in disguise. <laughs> Come on, kids, you've got to remember that one. They think our lives are like that. We're just like, it's miserable. But they haven't tapped into the joy. 
And it's hard for me to explain that. It's hard for me to help people understand that, that haven't experienced it. But the joy of the Lord is my strength. It's a joy that, that begins to flood through us. And Jesus says this, he says, if you are vitally connected with me, there's a joy. Now you see, when you're in the law, there wasn't necessarily a joy that came with it. There was a burden. There was a weight. There was a restriction. There was an expectation. But Jesus says, if you abide in me, if you remain in me, if you get this life of mine throwing through you, you will find something like so amazing happen in you. And it is that because you love me and my love is beginning to transform you, you will not have this burden of trying to keep some law. You will see the fruit begin to blossom through your life and you will become a different person. So Jesus is saying to them, I've got something new for you, not a new law, a whole new way of living, a whole new way of relating to me, and that will fundamentally change you. Have you experienced that fundamentally begin to change you as you walk with Jesus? I mean, I, I love the fruit of the Spirit, you know, and perhaps patience is the easy one to pick on always. It's love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self I mean, you know what it's like if you want more patience. How do you get more patience? Have you ever tried, like, Write on your mirror, patience. And then, and then you write a confession, I am patient. And then every day you get up and you're like, I'm patient. You read every scripture you can about patience and you're saying, I'm going to be patient. How many of you know when you do that for a while, you're doing well? And you're feeling proud about your patience. Hey? You're feeling good about your patience. Look how patient I am. You know, the old me would have done something or said something by now. But look at how patient I am. And, and for a while you feel like so good because what you're doing is you're externalizing. You're just being religious. You're trying to change yourself. But how many of you know you can only keep it up for so long before you spectacularly lose it? <laughs> I will not tell you my stories. I refuse. <laughs> but just, I mean, I've seen it so often in my life. Just when I feel proud about my achievement, bam, I hit the, like, pfft, splat. It's like, oh, I've got no patience. You see, because patience is not something that I can get. It's a product of having been with Jesus. You see, when I'm with Jesus, I begin to realize how patient he is with me. I begin to become aware in humility of all the massive mistakes I've made. And then, and then when I look at other people's failures and he... You're like, and I'm like, Lord, how can you be patient with them? I think you should like, you know, just deal with them a little bit. Every good pastor prays that prayer every now and then. Just, Lord, you know, like the sons of Zebedee, send some lightning, Lord. And then the Lord looks at me and, he's, and he just sort of flips through my journal with me. And he says, aren't you glad I didn't do that with you there? I want, and if a couple of pay, aren't you glad I didn't do that with you there? I'm like, I, I begin to be changed on the inside because of having been with Jesus. That's what Jesus offers us. That's the fruit that he's calling us to. It is in this union with him, this love relationship. I mean, it's not a perfect example, but perhaps something of it I experience in my marriage. How do I tell you that I love Natasha? How do I prove to you that I love her? 
Is it because I make a coffee in the mornings? I hate coffee. I don't like making coffee. Tea is easy. Bag, boiling water, bag, sugar, take the bag out. Don't leave the bag in with the milk, please. It's not how we drink tea. It's easy. Coffee, her coffee particularly, it's slow brewed drip system or AeroPress. And it's like, oh man, I don't know more. But I make a coffee. Is it because I always make empty the dustbin? Is it because I always fill the car for her? Is it because I, what, what do I tell you that meets the mark to say I love her? Yes, there's actions, but can I tell you, it's, the th- it's what's happening in my heart towards her, isn't it? I do all of these things, not because they were in my marriage vows. I sometimes go and look at our vows and like look for the fine print. <laughs> Where's this coffee nonsense? Then she always said to me, you got me like this. And I say, you lie, you didn't drink coffee. I mean, we were in the training center and the best we had was re-coffee at those days. So, you know, praise the Lord. I don't, my love for her cannot be tick boxes. Whew, I've had a good day. By 12 o'clock, I ticked all the boxes. I've got the day for myself. I can do what I want now because she's happy. No, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thing here that definitely displays itself. And you would be right if you start asking me questions if you don't see the display. But my response mustn't be, okay, tell me what to do so that I can tick the boxes and prove to you that I love her. My response must be, Lord, and Natasha, here's my heart. Help me deal with stuff here. Isn't that? That's what the Lord Jesus is inviting us into. Something so far deeper, so far more beautiful. And this, when we come into this space with him, where we live life with him in a love relationship, and we begin to obey him and obey his word and do what he says, um, then, then it changes us. And one of the first places you'll see that is it changes our relationship with fellow brothers and sisters. The Bible says when you do good, do good first to the household of the faith. And and I don't think it means that you must do good to believers and only then. It's just saying that the first place that you will experience this radical transformation of a life lived with Jesus is you'll see it in your relationships in a community of faith. Let's, Let's read what Jesus says in John 15 verse 12. He says this, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. He doesn't just say love each other. He says, as I have loved you. He's raising the bar. The only way I can love you the way Jesus loves you is if I get loved by Jesus first. I cannot generate that kind of love for any person in this world. The love that Jesus describes here when he says, greater love there is no one than this to lay down his life for his own friends. Jesus says, I'm gonna die for you. And he's telling me to love you the way he loves you by being prepared to die for you. And by the way, he applies the same measure to husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Don't get hung up on wives, submit to your husbands. That's almost the lesser part. It's this other part, but let me not talk about the household statement there. He says, because I love you. 
Jesus is dying for us on the cross, and next week we're going to spend time around that. Not because of a law, not because of some duty or some shame or some guilt. This Jesus that is complete, perfect, lacking nothing, needing no one, only motivated by his love for you, comes and says, I want to die for you so that you don't have to live by some external system that will be a yoke and a burden, but so that you can live in a relationship with me that I can change your life. Come to me. Come to me. Learn from me. Be embraced by me. And then he says this. He says, In verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command. This is a fantastic thing that Jesus is saying to his disciples and to us. It is, I mean, it's the greatest description of relationship God can offer us is friendship. The Bible describes us sometimes as his servants, which means he's here, we are here. Sometimes it's he's the father and he's the children. It still has a, it's a bit closer, it's a bit better, but it still has this. But when God says, I'm your friend, he puts us here. Not in power and authority, but in relational connection, he puts us here. Because you know a friend, a true friend, is somebody that wants to be with you because they, they just want to be with you, not because they're going to get something from you. If any person's hanging around you because of what they can get from you, they're not really your friend. A friend is somebody that says, I want you in my life. And God says, I'm your friend. And when God says to me, and he elevates me to that position of friendship with him, where Jesus says, a friend needs to know the secrets of the heart of the Father, where Jesus says, you are now invited into that place where no longer will you just obey a law but not really know why. You will now be brought into the inner chambers where my secrets will be told to you so that you will want to obey the things that I ask of you because you know the why and you have been captured by it in your hearts. When Jesus elevates me to that position, guess what? He also elevates my relationship with you to a higher level. And your relationship with me and your relationship with one another, he elevates to a higher place where he says we can share this in the body of Christ. He sets the tone for our relationships and he invites us into this relationships. In John 15 verse 16, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I chose you. We must always remember that we cannot be saved by our initiative. We can only be saved by Jesus' initiative. I can want to be Jesus' friend, but if he doesn't choose me to be his friend, I can't be his friend. Have you ever had people in your life that you know that you're not offering them a lot? I was so privileged to grow up in this church and was part of a youth group there in Centurion, and we had these older friends, our youth leaders, that would just spend time with us do the youth stuff and programs and teaching, but they would spend time with us. And, and later on, I sort of realized, these people, I don't, I'm not offering them anything. Uh, there's a friend, Heather, that, that she, I'm still connected with her. She was one of my youth leaders. I, I had such good memories of Heather would take us out for, for, for eat as much as you like, uh, ribs at the spur on a Monday night. 11 Rand 95. Eat as much as you like. Woo-hoo! The good old days. And, and we would sit and just eat, and she'd pay for it a lot of the time. Why would she do that? She chose us to be friends. 
I, I remember I had a friend at school that was a year older than me. He was in a different school. He was in an English school. I was in an African school. Man, but it was so cool. He was a good-looking, big, strong guy. But you know what was the best thing about him is he had a license. Man alive, and it was so great when, like, you know, he was a year older. I was grade 11. I could start riding around with him, and we'd go places, you know, do stuff. Hey, <laughs> it was cool. And I often thought, I'm not, off. I'm like scrawny little dude. Got nothing to offer him. But he was my friend. Just think about having Jesus as a friend. He says, I have chosen you. You're not my friend because you wanted to be my friend or you needed. I chose you. You. I wish I could put my finger in everyone's face online and in this room. You, Jesus says, are no longer my servant. You are my friend. You are my friend. You are my friend. But not only does it change our relationship with each other, it also changes our relationship with the world. In John 15, verse 18 to 21, onwards, right down to verse uh, John 16, he talks about how, he says, I love you, but the world's not going to accept you. They're going to reject you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to chase you away. They're going to chase you out of the synagogue. And, but please remember when they do that, it's actually not you that they're rejecting, it's me that they're rejecting. Now this is the reality. I can only live in this world with its animosity if I'm wrapped up in the love of Jesus. Because the challenge for the Christian is I'm living in a world that so often is not friendly. It's hostile territory. I don't know if you experience it, how often you experience it. Sometimes we don't even know we're experiencing it. But we, our, our faith puts us in a difficult spot so often with people. They don't understand us. They ridicule us. They, I mean, I've, I've been shoved in shoes, uh, sewers. I've had eggs broken on me because I'm a Christian. I've, I've struggled. Still today, sometimes, you know, I'm so like, I almost fear that moment till somebody asks me when I've met them and started making friendship with somebody. I never ask them what they do for a living because they're going to ask me if I ask them. And the moment I ask them, the relationship changes. Suddenly, ooh, I also have a cousin that studied to be a priest or, you know, something. I, I, I just want to... The world thinks we live our lives to judge them. I don't know about you, but in all my years of being a Christian, I don't think I have ever gone out to try and judge somebody. I've never gone out to try and wave, point a finger at somebody and tell them how bad they are, how terrible they are. Because that's not what I experienced and that's not what changed my life. So I don't think it's going to really help anybody. I've never done that. Yet every non-believer I get to finally have a conversation with will always feel like I'm trying to judge them. Because Jesus was the light that came into the world that revealed the darkness to the world and they didn't like it and you and I are going to do the same. On your front line, you're going to experience it. It's just, Jesus says it's the way. But you know what the real challenge is? These very people that, are, that don't like me are the people I'm supposed to love. You see, it would be one thing I had a friend once, a guy that I knew, that told me I'm going to kill you, I'm going to murder you, and I'm going to put an upside-down cross on your grave. That's how much he didn't like my Christianity. Now that guy, it would have been so helpful if 
I could just cut him out of my life. I said, I don't need that kind of negativity in my life. I don't need that kind of nonsense and hatred. I'm loved by God. I'm a child of the king. I don't need that. But what does Jesus call me to do? That guy is the guy I'm supposed to spend more time with, give him more reason to want to kill me and put an upside down cross on my grave and love him and pray for him. Isn't that strange how, and our relationship with the world, you see you can have, you, sometimes Christians have a relationship with the world where they're world embracing. World embracing is, ah, the world is not, it's, it's benign. You don't have to worry. The, the world is what it is, just you can do whatever you want. And many people today have this view. They, I'm a spiritual person, so I, as, anywhere in the world where I find spirituality is fine. I don't, I'm not part of religion. I don't have rules and laws. I'm just a spiritual person. The world is benign. I can be part of it. It's fine. You get people that treat the world like that. Then you get people that treat the world as world suspecting. They're suspicious of the world. They're like, I... I I'm in the world, but I'm not of the world. I've got to live close to the world, but I can't trust everything of the world. There's things in the world that'll harm me, but I've got to be part of the world. They fight this culture Christ challenge. Then you get the third group of people that are world-rejecting people. They're the kind of sectarian people. Often today we would call them like fundamentalists. Like the world is all bad. You've got nothing to do with the world. You separate yourself completely from the world. Now, I don't know where you live. I think as a community in this context where we live in a nation where we have freedom of religion, freedom of expression, we live in that middle group with our front lines idea. I live in a space where I want Jesus through me to love the world, but I'm always careful. I can't get just involved. I've got to protect my heart. I've got to keep myself pure. I've got to keep myself clean, but yet I can't reject. I can't, I can't be completely separate. So it creates tension in my life, doesn't it? And, and it fits into that space of, it's not neat ticks boxes that I know, you know. It's, it's a hard thing. And, and all of us has to negotiate that in our own lives in some way. How do I reach people on my front? What can I do with my non-Christian friends? What can't I do with them? What's okay for me to, so that I build bridges and one is the bridge too far? It's a challenge, isn't it? But you know what makes it possible? is the love of Jesus. I know the love of Jesus. I know the love of Jesus. I want to end with this thought. The last relationship is our relationship with the Spirit. In John 15 verse 26, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. It's the best word to describe the Spirit in that context, in the original language, is the word advocate. Sometimes the translations put comforter, counselor. It's actually the word advocate. It's a legal term that says you're going to live in front of this world and they're going to want to accuse you and you have an accuser of the brethren, but the spirit within you will testify both to you that you are a child of God and will through you testify who God is to the rest. You must testify. But again, it's not some activity I do. It's a result of what God has done and doing in my life. But this is what a follower of Jesus is. A disciple is a person, a follower of Jesus is a person who cares about right thinking, they care about right living, 
But they do those things within the context of a supernatural experience that cannot be compared with anything else in this world. As a follower of Jesus, I need to believe the right things. I need to know the scripture. I need to understand what, what is the truth. I care about that. I also care about living, living right, having a moral life, an ethical life. I care about what is right and wrong. But those two things can become my religion if I don't bring them into the space of the third thing. I have an intimate living relationship with Jesus. And His power by the Holy Spirit is what works those two things in my life. It's Him that teaches me all truth. And it's Him that teaches me right and wrong. But not as an external law, but as a response of my heart. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I open my heart for you. Won't you stand with me? I'm going to just end, team. You don't have to come up, Luke. That Make Room song, that line in it is break down the walls of my religion. Does it go like that? I don't know about you, but I find this religiosity in myself so often. Where I want to slip from the, the requirement or the, the journey of intimacy into a more controllable, perhaps even feels like a more understandable religiosity. And I put this pressure on myself the whole time that if I can just do this, then God will be pleased with me instead of drawing near to Him. Surrendering to Him. Loving Him and letting Him love me. And that's not just some ethereal, mystical love. That's a real love that is founded through Scripture, that is founded through community, that is founded through real activity. But it's living Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, the word of the Lord is alive and active. On Tuesday this week, I tried something new. I, I decided to make my own pizza dough. We, we make pizza at home. And so Tuesday evening, we were going to have pizza. So actually on Monday, I went to the University of Life, which is called YouTube. And I... Um, I said how to make pizza dough and watched a couple of videos until I found what sort of seemed like the middle of the road kind of thing. And you know to make dough, many of you will know, I'm new to this so forgive my ignorance, but there's three ingredients that you begin the process with. You take some warm water, not boiling, just warm water. You take some sugar and you take some yeast. And you take this warm water, you put it in a bowl, then you add the sugar, you mix it, then you put the yeast in. You mix it up, make sure it's mixed, and then you cover it for a couple of minutes, that's what YouTube says, then you come back. And if the process is going somewhere, then there will be bubbles forming on the surface of this mixture because the yeast is being activated. And you need the yeast to activate the rising process. If there's no yeast, you'll make this clump of dough, but you won't eat it. And so I did this because they said, if, if you come back to the bowl and there's no bubbles, throw it out and begin again because then the yeast is old. It's not active anymore. And so fortunately, I got there and there were these beautiful bubbles. It didn't Jesus say that his kingdom is like the yeast? You see, I can bring my right living. I can bring my right thinking. But without the yeast of the Holy Spirit, there will be no bubbling. There'll be no living, there'll be no rising, there will be no elevation, there will be no reaching to the higher places. 
Can I ask you with me this morning, just raise your hands, open them up like this, like a, like a good old funnel or a bowl and say, Holy Spirit, I need the yeast. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Just pour out upon us today. I pray for every person in this room, every person joining us on, on YouTube, every person on the radio. I pray right now for the activation of the living spirit in our lives, even more than before in Jesus' name. Come, Jesus, by your spirit. Thank you for this new covenant, this new thing, that you are not firstly concerned about our, or how we live, you are concerned about that we live with you. Because that will ultimately change how we live. So we come. I pray for every person that feels stuck right now. Caught up in some habit. Some sin. Some. Just some destructive element in their lives. And I pray right now. And I, I speak over them Lord. This assurance that God can change them. There is nothing going on in your life that is beyond the capacity of Jesus to change by his spirit and his word. And I speak that over you right now. I cancel every lie where any person has begun to believe that they cannot stop doing this. They, they caught and they will never deal with it. It may be hard. It may revolve, involve lots of processes, but it can be done. And I speak that life. I speak that bubbling right now of the spirit in our lives in Jesus' name. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. I just make room for you. I make room for you. I make room for you. Come Jesus. Come Jesus. I pray for you that as you go into this week. That you will experience. Your friend Jesus. That has chosen you to be his friend. That it will not be a duty to spend time with him, but it will be a love to spend time with him. To hang out with your friend. And I pray for you that this life-giving experience will continue to grow and bring you joy and peace and fruit that overflows in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want prayer this morning, yeah, come on, let's give the Lord a hand. Let's just praise the Lord for his goodness. Praise the Lord for his, just his faithfulness. We look so forward to being with you on Friday. It's going to be a full service Friday with all our communities coming together. So get here early enough. Do the walk, the the. the, the Walk of the cross, the prayer walk, that's it. Do that during this week. If you need prayer this morning, please come to the front and our team is ready to pray with you. If you want to talk to them about giving your life to Jesus, just tell the person that they'll help you to do that. Please remember if you want to go to the Connect Lounge to do so, but just lots of blessings. We'll see you on Friday. Have a great week.